Joyful Sex Education, we provide the tools to foster sex-positive consciousness. But what is sex-positive consciousness? Well, this is what we will explore together here on the Pleasure Principle Podcast. We'll interview experts, dig into research, ask ourselves what sex-positive consciousness means to each of us individually, within our relationships, and how a deep understanding of sexuality can shape and improve our culture. Knowledge is power, and when we know how to wield this power, we can change the world. Join me on The Pleasure Principle. Who knows what we'll discover together on this journey. I'm excited. Here we are at the second, probably going to cut that out episode. If you haven't listened to the previous episode called Why is Sex Education Important? Part 2, please go back and listen to that first. Because in this episode, we are going to listen to Dr. DeShabo talking about organizations that provide oversight, support, and certification for sexuality professionals like counselors, therapists, and educators. We are also going into a deep dive about one of the topics that really jumped out at me uh, in her interview. Um, ASEC is American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. It was founded specifically because this country does not have adequate sex education um, in any realm or arena. Even health education, people with master's degrees in health education, I was shocked to find out even they have almost, these are the people that if you're lucky, you get a health educator who's trained in your school to teach your kids sex ed. And they haven't been trained in sex ed. They're trained in almost everything else. They get a very teeny amount in sex ed and that's it. So that's why ASEC was formed, was to be the people who filled that gap, who have the good research, utilize the good research. Um, you know, we, we're kind of, it turns out, I just found out this recently, that we are sort of sister organizations. When we began, we were sister organizations with uh, two other organizations. One is SICUS, which is Sex Information and Education Council of the U.S., and they were an advocacy, advocacy group, and they have created a lot of really wonderful uh, comprehensive sex education curricula that uh, folks can use. They can access it for free. Um, for their, their towns, cities, uh, their own use, etc. Have sex education on every appropriate level for K through 12. So, you know, obviously you don't teach kids the same thing when they're kindergartners or even, you know, fifth graders that you do when they're, you know, in high school. Um, so that's CECUS. And then there's Quad S. We call them Quad S because it's four S's, right? Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality. And they are the research uh, organization. And it's not that, uh, I mean, these three uh, organizations all do some similar things. But if you look at them as a whole, you have like advocacy lays more in SICAS and <clears throat> certification. We are sort of the certification organization. And then QUADAS is the research organization. And um, we're beginning to work more closely together again, which is makes me very happy. All of these organizations are assisting educators, therapists, and counselors as they face the daunting task of offering comprehensive and holistic sex, sex education to a disconnected and deeply erotophobic world. Much of what we'll be talking about in this segment came from a class that I recently completed at IC. 
This is Dr. Rosalind DeChavo's definition of holistic sex education. Holistic sex education is a practice that combines emotional, physical, intellectual, spiritual, and ecological values and utilizes multiple levels of consciousness to enlighten all involved in it in matters pertaining to sexuality. So the idea of holistic sex education must include a deeper philosophy of interconnectedness. As Dr. DeShavo discussed in part two of why is sex education important, the act of sex or sexual intercourse is only one small part of our sensual experience as human beings. Whether we like it or not, our sexuality affects every part of our mind, body, spirit, and we are connected to everything and everyone around us. The thing that really jumped out at me in this interview was the section where she talks about the interconnectedness of sexuality. But why are we ignoring this part of us? And we, would ne- we never look at sex. We, we just think, oh, well, that's this thing you do over there. That's this thing you do in the bedroom. But it's not. It's, it's like losing your left foot. It impacts every other part of your life. Just after that interview, I sat through a lecture on holistic sex education where Dr. DeShavo talks about our connection to the world around us and the writings of philosopher Gene Gipser. He has a fascinating theory about the evolution of consciousness. Now, stay with me. This gets really good. Now, I don't have Gipser's magnum opus, The Ever-Present Origin, but I read a few pages that I found online. It's a heavy read. I take a little bit in and I let it settle, rattling loose some thoughts that I might have already had swimming around in my mind without context. What I've been obsessing over is an article by Ulrich Morhoff. I'll put a link to that paper in the notes. So I'm going to try and explain what excites me so much about his theories and how they are connected to sex-positive consciousness. We can all see that as human beings, many of us have cut ourselves off from our sexuality to some extent or on some level. This has created an imbalance in our existence. I mean, I literally cut myself off from my body and the beauty of my sexual nature for many years. And at this point in my life, I am keenly aware of the painful consequences of that option. It was a helpful coping mechanism for a time, but after a while... It just didn't serve me anymore. Remember here that sexuality includes not just intercourse. That's just the fun mechanics of it. What it's really about is connection to ourselves, our needs, our desires. It includes relationship to other people and the world that we live in. On a physiological level, the act of sex can literally give life. But equally true, if not more so, is the fact that sexuality isn't just confined to our groin. It's a force that is a part of our mind, body, and spirit. All of us, whether we create another physical human life or not, are in possession of a power that creates art, philosophy, healing, growth, and especially connection. Awareness of this powerful state of being reminds us that we are not actually separate, I think. That is one of the reasons orgasms feel so good. Because in that moment, we are not experiencing our normal, separate state of being. You've all heard that in French, the word for orgasm translates as little death. 
we are transcending our normal state of being. This little section is straight from a class on the principles of holistic sex education. Sexuality is connected to and impacted by relationship with earth, relationship with society, relationships with people, relationships with self, body, mind, and spirit. We cannot afford to ignore this fact any longer. As much as we have been living in our heads in this mental state of consciousness, it seems to me that we are on the precipice of another transition. We are all experiencing a greater awareness of our mortality at the moment. Even if we're not ourselves at high risk of dying, we are all being reminded of hum humanity's vulnerabilities as a whole. If you have ever veered close to death, you know that this creates profound change. When I experienced this, I was in an altered state that shifted my consciousness and facilitated tremendous change in my life. Perhaps not every single one of us is currently feeling the veil of death brush our cheek. But suddenly, every single human feels the fluttering presence of that translucent partition. I am telling you, this is a time to pay attention. Not just to the concrete political landscape, as Rachel Maddow reminds me on a, to do on a regular basis, but to the parts of our existence that we may have been neglecting or unaware of. Our consciousness has evolved to allow for greater mental capacity and reasoning, and this is important and good. Gibser addresses the evolution of human consciousness on a finer scale, from its initial archaic structure through its magic, mythical, and mental structures to the eventual manifestation of its integral structure. The magic, mythical, mental, integral states will also be referred to with corresponding terms point, line, space, time. You can tie these states of consciousness to the standard reaction that we have to our world, including topics around sexuality and relationships. So as I try to explain the 101 Gebser for Dummies version of his philosophy, I'll also tie this into some standard reactions to common topics around the relationships and sexuality. Number one, sexual orientation. That is, who turned you on and draws you in sexually? Number two, gender identity. How you feel on the inside as far as gender. And remember that this doesn't always match the body that you were born with. Number three, relationship orientation, or how you prefer to structure the intimate relationships in your life. Okay, here we go. Gebser talks about our consciousness evolving from an early pre-mental state that he calls the archaic structure. This is where there was no awareness of the difference between us and anything that surrounds us. The early period is that period when the soul is still dormant and its sleep or dormancy may have well been so deep that even though it may have existed, perhaps in a spiritual preform, it had not yet attained consciousness. One of my earliest memories is of a dream that I had as a very young child. I woke both excited and terrified by the memory of this dream, and I never forgot it. When I had the words, I talked to myself about feeling in an instant smaller than a mouse, while in the moment, or at the same time, feeling bigger than a giant, bigger than anything I could comprehend. 
when I had a greater awareness of what this haunting dream might have meant, I wrote this. Child dream. I am so small, tinier than a mouse, almost a speck of dust. No, I'm expansive, heavy, large, vast. Suddenly, a spark of microscopic light, changing again, shifting, then again, in a breath. The strangeness seems only natural at the time. I think maybe that dream was my experience of archaic consciousness. The magic structure. From that archaic state, we moved into a first level of consciousness that he calls the magic structure. The emergence of the magic structure is above all a transition from the undifferentiated identity to one-dimensional unity. The magic consciousness is focused on a single point, which can be interchanged with other points, or as a part, stand for a whole. The man of the magic structure has been released from his harmony or identity with the whole. With that, a first process of consciousness began. It was still completely sleep-like. For the first time, not only was a man in the world, but he began to face the world in its sleep-like outlines. Therewith arose the germ of a need, that of no longer being in the world, but of having the world. The more man released himself from the whole, becoming conscious of himself, the more he began to be an individual, a unity not yet able to recognize the world as a whole, but only the details or points. This is an awareness that there is something, but we're not sure what outside of the point of me. There's a lot more to this that is so fascinating, but I'm stopping myself from going there. Because I'm going to tie orientation and identity with our levels of consciousness. So, point consciousness tells us that sexual orientation is binary. Gay or straight, that's all you get. Point consciousness tells, it, tells us that gender is binary. Boxed in, boy or girl. Point consciousness tells us that relationship orientation is also binary, single or partnered, no other option. Well, we know that's not accurate, right? The mythical structure. Then we evolved to be able to comprehend what he calls a mythical structure with a corresponding idea that we are points on a line. Just as the archaic structure was an expression of zero-dimensional identity and original wholeness, and the magic structure and expression of one-dimensional unity and man's merging with nature, so is the mythical structure the expression of two-dimensional polarity. This way of perceiving introduces not only our internal state of being, emotions, sympathy, etc., but the idea of polarity, a this or a that, which we perceive as points on a line. Here's how this level of consciousness affects our perception of sexuality and relationships. Line consciousness tells us that sexual orientation is on a continuum, that we can be anywhere on that line, but there we sit. We don't change over our lifetime. Line consciousness tells us that gender is a point that exists on a line, that we can be anywhere on that line of gender, even if it's not all the way male or female, but something in between. But that is our static identity. Line consciousness tells us that relationship orientation is also on a line. People can be single, divorced, or married. 
or they can have serial monogamous relationships, or they can cheat, or they can be open, polyamorous or polygamous, but it's one or the other, and it stays the same. The mental structure. Or space consciousness. As I understand it, this is when we really begin to grasp the reality of the space around us, or the universe that we live in. This shift in consciousness brought about amazing advancements in science and physics, and we were able to create all kinds of stunning changes in our world. However, as Gibser says, The overemphasis on space and spatiality that increases with every century since 1500 is at once the greatness as well as the weakness of perspectival man, whose overemphasis on the objectively external, a consequence of an excessively visual orientation, leads not only to rationalization and haptification, but to an unavoidable hypertrophy of the eye, which is in confrontation with the external world. Now, I think this is kind of a nice way of saying that humankind has gotten a little full of themselves and extremely self-absorbed. I hate to break it to you people, but, you know, this is our current state of consciousness. Here's how this state of consciousness affects our perception of sexuality and relationships. Space consciousness tells us that our sexual orientation is on a continuum, that we can be anywhere on that line at any time in our life. Fluid. Space consciousness tells us that gender is fluid and will shift and change over a lifetime. Space consciousness tells us that relationship orientation shifts and changes over a lifetime. We are sometimes single, sometimes partnered, sometimes monogamous, sometimes not. This can be cheating, which causes pain, or we can be open, which is hard, but more honest. Then we get to the integral consciousness. Awareness of time. I believe that right now, we could be experiencing the dramatic shift into an integral state of consciousness that Gebser and others have seen coming. I think this state of awareness is based in part on a deeper understanding of time, whatever that means. It's certainly true that technology and artificial intelligence will be a tremendous tool for us to use in order to make this leap. However, if we make this jump without bringing along an awareness of how everything that makes us human, how everything we do affects everyone and everything around us, we're in for serious trouble. I've always felt the concept of nonlinear time as truth on a cellular level, but, but this isn't anything I can effectively describe. To the best of my ability, I practice being present in each moment, but time simply doesn't seem linear to me. Gibser tries to get us to let go of this idea of past, present, and future existing on a line, encouraging us that there will be an integration of all these states of consciousness when this occurs. He talks a lot about how we use terms like, I don't have enough time, I'm killing time, or wasting time. But I love this quote from Ulrich. Being interposed between past and future, the now becomes as divider. And by thinking of past, present, and future as parts of time, it is time itself that gets divided. 
pointing to the lack of time characteristic of our material, spatially accentuated world, Gibser asks rhetorically, How is anyone to have time if he tears it apart? Right now, we are living through a time when it is critical to comprehend the concept of integral consciousness. This is our opportunity to collect all of the strengths of each way of being human in the world. Each evolution in our consciousness as human beings brought its own benefits. Archaic gave us an understanding of oneness. Magic, or point consciousness, brought a shift that allowed us to grow and evolve on our own. When a baby realizes it is not the same entity as its mother anymore, this allows it to grow into a powerful human on its own. We realized we were separate, but still connected. Mythical or line consciousness made us aware that we are connected, yet different from everyone and everything around us. Mental or space consciousness brought about Renaissance thinking and an awareness of perspective, which sparked the desire to deeply understand the concrete world around us, as well as the ability to change it to our liking and needs. Science, technology, engineering, and math was born. What a miracle. However, because we have not integrated the earlier levels of consciousness, we've been doing a lot of damage to ourselves and the world around us. Right now, we are experiencing the miraculous gift of being able to observe concrete evidence of how our way of being has damaged the world. During this pandemic shutdown, we are seeing the skies clear, animals coming out of hiding, and we are experiencing the gift of stillness on a personal level. We feel vulnerable, and I would encourage you to embrace this feeling. Brene Brown has a great TED Talk on the power of vulnerability. She articulates why we cannot feel empathy without feeling vulnerability first. I'll put a link to this clip in the episode notes. Now, I think we can all see the scarcity of empathy in our world right now. When we move on to the next state of consciousness, which coalesces all the benefits of all the states of consciousness, I believe this will bring about so many positive changes. For example, when we really understand that not only is gender identity fluid throughout our lifetime, our biological gender is kind of irrelevant. We are all one and the same. And when we grok that, sexism can't exist. Can you imagine how this will benefit all people, as well as affecting how we all interact with the world around us? That is worth pondering again. And by the way, all of this points out the philosophy that we are all part of something that is bigger than ourselves. Now, I'm kind of a pagan agnostic, but I find it interesting that all people all over the world have one, one common thing that they often say at the moment of orgasm. Yeah, that's right. You know you've said it. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh. Here we get to orientation and identity from an integral level of consciousness. And I have to say, this is almost a direct Raz Deshava quote right here. 
Integral consciousness tells us that sexual orientation, gender identity, and relationship identity has a life of its own that is connected to not only our needs and identities, but those of the planet as well. If one focuses in on relationship identity, you can see that though polygamy has been around for eons, to have polyamory, a culture has to rid itself of sexism. When I first started reading about Gebser, I was still looking at these states of consciousness in a line consciousness kind of way, that we are either functioning from this state of consciousness or that state of consciousness. But I realized that's a false choice. All of us as individuals have felt ourselves slip back into dinosaur brain when we're having a rage attack. Then we get our wits about us and rise up out of that state of mind. When we're talking about Gebser's four states of consciousness, I must remember that each one of us as individuals, as well as humanity as a whole, are shifting around among all of these states. The previous or past modes of consciousness are still a part of us, they still affect us, and therefore they affect the world we live in. Some people live more in one state than the other. I think it's critical that we all sit back and remember that currently we do not completely comprehend what it means to be human. And it's arrogant to think that we've reached the pinnacle of consciousness. Believing that would be foolish. And at this moment, it is dangerous. Crisis and suffering bring about profound change. And sometimes we have no control over the crisis. But what we can control is our perception and reaction to the crisis. Because we don't know what our world is going to be like when we're on the other side of this particular pandemic. I think we can all agree that we're in for some hard times. The question is, how are we going to react to these times? Are we going to react with panic and self-absorption? Or are we going to allow ourselves to be cracked open to perhaps experience some reality or level of consciousness that we have been missing? I want you to hear from Gebser himself now. The present crisis. The crisis we are experiencing today is not just a European crisis, nor a crisis of morals, economics, ideologies, politics, or religion. It is not only prevalent in Europe and America, but in Russia and the Far East as well. It is a crisis of the world, and mankind, such as has occurred previously only during pivotal junctures, junctures of decisive finality for life on Earth and for the humanity subjected to them. The crisis of our times and our world is in a process, at the moment autonomously, of complete transformation and appears headed toward an event which, in our view, can only be described as a global catastrophe. This event, understood in any but anthropocentric terms, will necessarily come about as a new constellation of planetary extent. We must soberly face the fact that only a few decades separate us from that event. This span of time is determined by an increase in technological feasibility inversely proportional to man's sense of responsibility. That is, unless a new factor were to emerge which would effectively overcome this menacing correlation, if we should not or cannot successfully survive this crisis by our own insight and assure the continuity of our Earth and mankind in the short or the long run by a transformation or a mutation, then the crisis will outlive us. Either we will be disintegrated and dispersed, or we must resolve and affect integrality. Either we will be disintegrated and dispersed, or 
we must resolve to affect integrality. Listen. Integrality is what we're talking about. Integrality is being aware of the connectedness of all things. Everything within us, everything outside of us. We can't avoid that anymore. Thank you for listening to probably going to cut that out. Number two, I'm going to reiterate the reason that I ask for your feedback as reviews or engagement on the Facebook page. And the reason I do that is that I need to hear what this experience is like for you. I'm pouring lots of energy into this and I think, and I think it's fascinating But I need to know if the listeners feel like uh, I'm just going down these rabbit holes. So I'm not after after all kinds of kudos to stroke my ego. Um, I really want your feedback because I want to make this program the best that it can possibly be. Thank you very much. Thank you.